Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Battlefields Podcast, brought to you by The Epoch Times. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fink, the director of the Battlefields Project and the owner of The Havoc Journal, where we pride ourselves on being the voice of the veteran community. This week, we are bringing you Profiles in Havoc, stories from the men and women serving our nation on the battlefield and the home front. Many thanks to The Epoch Times for their generous and enduring support of America's military and first responders, as well as to our other sponsors, including the Havoc Journal, the Second Mission Foundation, and Veterans Repertory Theater. And now, the host of the Battlefields Podcast and Profiles in Havoc, Christopher Paul Meyer. Where is the next war going to be? Iraq and Syria are old news. Afghanistan is even older. So where's the next place we're going to fight? Who are we going to fight? Havoc Journal writer Carrie Patton and Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint come on the show this week to discuss it with me. And to be honest, they both kind of disappointed me. I mean, we talked about a lot of interesting things. Who are the closest friends to the U.S.? If the U.S. is a racist country. Talked about Chinese information operations, a whole lot of stuff. But neither one was able to give me the answer that I was looking for. So, spoiler alert, I'll tell you now. The answer is Turkey in the Indian Ocean with a candlestick. Happy? Sound cool? Can't wait? Yeah, me neither. All right, this is an episode that features Carrie's Barnyard Animals and my dogs, as well as a joke I steal from Mel Brooks twice to absolutely zero laughs. It's going to be great. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. So guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, roundtable discussion of the week's events from the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Carrie Patton was just a cop in the Air Force. He specified he was not a cool guy, bro vet. But these days, spends his time on his homestead, enjoying chickens, ducks, geese, rabbits, a couple of which you can hear in the background, in case you don't believe him. Um... And uh, he's an interesting guy. He's done a lot of other stuff, but I'm going to let him humble brag. And I'm not going to mention the books and movies and all that that he's done. Carrie, welcome to the Weekly Havoc. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's going to be fun. Of course, man. I'm glad we could finally get you on. And then with me again this week, Charlie Faint. Charlie's an active duty Army intelligence officer. He is the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and of course, the owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. Um, insider baseball for our devoted fans. Charlie is pinch hitting, uh, but fortunately this week... He has, uh, we got a topic that's right up his alley and one that I really want to dive into uh, without too much ado because it's a fun one. The topic, of course, is where is our next war? Now, that doesn't presuppose that we might not just continue the current wars and increase involvement potentially in any of them. But it's always fun to speculate about where we could possibly find ourselves next. Uh, Just a brief recap of what's been going on in the dangerously recent past. Ten days ago, Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin a killer in an interview with ABC. 
Putin responded. They debated back and forth a little bit uh, through the media. And then Russia recalled its ambassador back to Moscow. So it had some significant second-order effects. A week ago, China met with Secretary of State Blinken in Alaska. The meeting, I think, can generally be summed up as saying it did not go great. Um, it was honest, maybe that's fair to say. Secretary of State Blinken listed a bunch of specific grievances that the U.S. has with China, human rights abuses, territorial expansionism, etc. And then the Chinese uh, returned fire uh, verbally by criticizing America's foreign adventurism and our, and I put this in quotes, domestic human rights abuses. This, of course, comes after a lot of Chinese aggression, which I'm sure we'll get into, Sengaku Islands, picking on Taiwan, stuff in the South China Sea. We also have Taiwan and Japan conducting increased military buildup. So there's a whole lot of stuff, obviously, going on with China, which does make it uh, blue checkmark Twitter's kind of hot pick for the next place we could potentially find ourselves or the next enemy we could find ourselves squaring off against. Two days ago, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention North Korea conducted a missile test, first one under the Biden administration. Let me clarify, not that Biden is the leader of North Korea, but since Biden took over, this is the first time North Korea has conducted a missile test. Biden responded by promising a, quote unquote, responses if there are continued missile tests. So read into that what you will. Of course, we still have Afghanistan going on with the, quote unquote, peace talks, and we have Iraq and Syria and all the shenanigans there. There are also a lot of proxy conflicts that could suck us in. There's unrest in Belarus. We have U.S. Uh, presence next door in Poland. Uh, there's the India-Kashmir situation. There's the India-China border tensions. There's even the coup in Burma, all of which potentially uh, could suck us in if China gets involved or um, other entities get involved that force us to respond. So the bottom line is, we don't know where we're going to fight our next war, but it's fun to speculate. Kerry Patton, what do you think? Where are we going to fight our next war? I don't think we're going to have a major uh, global conflict, if you will, at least for another 20 to 50 years. Um, I think what we're facing right now is a second round of Cold War 2.0. Uh, we see the global color uh, revolution movements going on and if anybody believes that those are just independent revolutionaries uh they'd, they'd be mistaken there there are absolutely state supporters that are backing these revolutionaries and you know some of them do come from the united states support while many others come from say places like russia or china and if we understand and look back into the let's just say between 1960 to 1992, 93 timeframe, we could understand that there was a major rise in revolutionary movements throughout South Central America, Africa, um, parts of Asia. And we also had a serious wave of terrorism and that includes domestic terrorism. And I really believe what we are seeing today uh, is a mirror image of what we saw from, say, 1960 to 1992 uh, timeframe, give or take a, a few years on both ends. Uh, and, and that isn't necessarily a bad thing because it's all 
based upon what is known as shaping operations. It's all a matter of shaping the future of where the the global um, posture will be down the road. Uh, It's a real question, though, of whether the United States intelligence community and our diplomatic corps has the skill sets to ensure the United States remains uh, that superpower to create leverage where leverage is needed and to manipulate um, the good guys and bad guys equally without putting troops, uh, mass troops of any type uh, into major conflict. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to uh, throw a one question back at you, Carrie, um, just to push you on some of this. So, as you said, from the six, from 1960 to about 1992, um, or let's be specific, 1989, we had the containment policy, right? So we had something in place. We identified generally our biggest geopolitical threat. Uh, we saw everything as stretching out from the tentacles of the threat of communism, and we had a policy in place to deal with it. So while everything remained low-intensity conflict, and we had a couple of proxy wars, obviously, um, but everything kind of fit under that umbrella. So we had an ideological framework for what we were dealing with and how to deal with it. What do you think, though, now? Do you see a similar a policy that fits, that goes, hey, this is what we're dealing with, so therefore – this is how we need to be thinking about this threat. This is now we need to codify it. And this is how we need to approach it. No, not at all. Actually, um, we're so politically divided in, in America. Um, and I don't mean necessarily from a, a social construct of political divide. I'm talking about the true apparatus of Washington, D.C., um, where everybody has their own agenda. Um, D.C. Is, is so full of narcissistic, egotistical, and, and nepotistic um, components uh, where where nobody's on the same page at all. And when you have a guy like President Trump who served four years, he had his own vision. There's no question about it. He, he definitely had his own vision. But there were very few people on the Republican side and Democrat side equally that supported and agreed with his vision. So when he was out of office, that vision could continue and be a a longer standing 20 year plan. So as soon as, as we saw, as soon as he got out of office, uh, right, wrong or indifferent, president Biden immediately started enacting executive orders to counter some of the initiatives that Trump was uh, trying to push for. So using that as an example from a national security standpoint of global conflict, all right, that's one of those things where until we're all on the same page with a unified um, approach to handling the 5, 10, 20, 50-year plan, uh, we're not going to be able to really do a whole lot. And remember that that plan that you were talking about, um, that was a 50 year plan that was actually created through the Council of Foreign Relations. And that's a bipartisan organization. Technically speaking, it's supposed to be. Um, and at the time, there's no doubt it was a bipartisan organization, no matter what people think of it today. But that CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, was a major player in shaping U.S. policy today. I don't think we have that strong major player that can unify all sides of the spectrum and say, this is what our policy is going to be for longevity. I think that might be true. I would say it's 
encouraging to me that the Biden administration, as much as their rhetoric domestically uh, has altered from the Trump years, their foreign policy, they're actually building on what Trump had been doing with China. And I have a lot of problems with what Trump did. But um, hold on a second. I'm going to strangle my dog and then I'm going to get back to my point. Um, Between your dog and my rooster, right? I'll tell you, seriously, I know. Do we have a policy for either of them? Um, okay. So um, my, my point being, I will, I, we can talk more. Um, I don't want to make this too much about Trump because that is a whole show in and of itself. Um, I, I'm not sure I agree that I think he had as unified of foreign policy vision as you do. But let's, let's leave that aside for the time being. I do think it's interesting that Biden has not been able to – this might be his language more than mine, pacify, let's say, or um, blunt the edges of Trump's foreign policy. He's actually continued where Trump left off. I mean, he's only two months into the administration, but I think that's interesting that he hasn't completely about-faced the way he has, let's say, domestically with his executive orders. I think that's an interesting uh, piece. Charlie, though, I want I don't want to leave you out. What do you think? So I, th- I think Kerry brings up a lot of great points, as he always does. And I'm sitting here listening. I was taking notes copiously while both of you were talking. There's a lot of really great things coming out of that. So the thing that I, I was thinking about most, Chris, is the question about where we will, where the next war will take place is interesting. But I think what would be even more interesting would be to talk about what was going to be the nature of the next war. So we hear all these issues and we can read in the national security strategy. We still got the, the same competitors, that same types of, of folks that mean to do us harm, Russia, North Korea and China. So we don't we, at the end of the day, I don't think we know where the next war is going to take place. I think the short term is, is likely to be the same places we've always been fighting. But I think everyone, certainly the three of us uh, who keep up with current events in politics and military affairs and have seen it firsthand downrange, we can't deny that China is probably going to be the biggest threat. And they're making all kind of noise uh, about Taiwan. They're hacking. They're doing drones. They're doing all these things, all this stuff we read about in the news. So I think the place it's going to happen is going to be less important than the nature of it. And I keep going back to something I read in the National Defense Strategy, and it, was, it said that the, the homeland is no longer sanctuary. And I think most Americans are completely divorced from the reality of warfare. And that's one of the reasons these wars go on so long. But next time we get in a fight with a capable competitor, I'm not talking ISIS. I'm talking Russia or China, North Korea, or somebody we haven't even thought about yet. It's going to affect us here. And I don't think Americans are ready for that yet, Chris. So let me uh, throw another uh, way of looking at it at you, Charlie. Tell me what you think about this. What if we look at it through the other end of the telescope? What if – the war just won't affect us here. What if the war is happening here and the actual guns and tanks is really secondary? And of course I'm talking about information warfare. Um, if you psychologically condition your opponent to accept uh, your dominance, <laughs> you kind of can end run and circumvent the actual fighting so that by the time anything forceful happens, uh, everybody's kind of psychologically conditioned to accept you as the victor. Uh, we certainly had 
a lot of claims of stuff like this with the Russia um, propaganda and Russia uh, influence operations happening through cyber. But we see the same thing with China. We see a lot through um, – I mean it's been widely reported with the Confucius Institutes on college campuses, um, with uh, stringers for local newspapers that are run by the Chinese government. There's been a lot of stuff that's come out that is alarming. Politico, I remember a few years, had a great piece on China's ability to bully uh, democracy advocates, Chinese democracy advocates in San Francisco. And their sphere of influence in the Northern California region was substantial. What do you think about that? Is that overstated or do you think that's that could also be a way that this war potentially takes place? I think that it is, it is going on, and I think there's plenty of evidence to substantiate it uh, in the open source readings that, that we're all very familiar with. I think also that the, our enemies look at us, and they look at how much we spend on defense, way more than anybody else, um, way more than many other nations combined. The effectiveness of our operations and the fact that we've been at war for 20 years, and that does matter for something. You know, a war with China would not be what we experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan. But you still have a, a, a joint force that's extremely capable and leaders who are extremely experienced. So I think they're looking at that. And right now, there's no other nation in the world that's like, hey, you know, I don't I don't really think we can take on America. But what we sh we could do, and we've seen this, especially in the last six years or so, we could get them to fight among themselves. So even if there's not a full-blown civil war inside the United States, they can weaken us so much that nothing gets done in Congress, that we ignore threats, that we use... Um, all types of of information is, gets used against us, and I think that's what they're doing. I think that's what we're seeing right now, Chris. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm um, exactly to the point you're making. Uh, I want to look at when Secretary Blinken met with the Chinese in Alaska. First, I also am going to take this opportunity to make the dad joke that I've been making about Blinken since he became the Secretary of State. I'm sure you guys have seen Men in Tights, Mel Brooks, Robin Hood Men in Tights, and I can't stop thinking about it because Secretary Blinken's name is Anthony Blinken or A. Blinken, and that was the joke in Men in Tights is there was – they said, hey, Blinken. And he said, do you say, hey, Blinken? He said, no. I said, hey, Blinken. And now that is in my head every time I hear any news story, no matter how serious, about the secretary. Anyway, now that I got that off my chest. So when they were in Alaska, it was interesting to me that the Chinese, when they responded to the accusations of from the United States about the Uyghurs and about human rights abuses in China, uh, their abuses against the democracy protesters in Hong Kong, et cetera that the Chinese pivoted to our very domestic narrative uh, that's been popularized a lot over the last year, uh, that we are a racist society. And it's undeniable that in the last you know, month or so, the uh, anti-American, uh, I mean, anti-Asian hate crime uh, policing has gone through the roof. There's constant hashtags about that, what have you. Um, and so without getting into the merits of, of how true or not those might be, it is interesting that uh, that is now that that can no longer be seen just through a domestic prism. That is absolutely fodder in the foreign policy arena. And what disturbed me is that when the Chinese threw that back at Blinken and they said, um, hey, Blinken, there we go. That's just for me. Uh, they said, hey, you're a racist society as well. And don't come at us telling us about the Uyghurs and human rights abuses. And Blinken's response was, 
Well, we we're, we're addressing it and we're, we're trying to do a lot better. And I thought, yikes, man, that that's not, I mean, look, we have our problems. Sure. That's not exactly the forceful pushback against the racist narrative and to say, Hey, China, you're on a whole different level than what we're talking about. Um, am I making too much of this? Kerry Patton, what do you think? I'm probably not the guy to even ask this because I try to see things from all points of views. I mean, look, I, I've, I've personally went into some really unique landscapes uh, where my life was in the, in the hands of other people who were considered bad people to Americans. Um, and I've spoken to them, I've interviewed them. Um, so I have this tendency to really listen closely probably more to our adversaries or what are deemed our, our adversaries than I do our, our good guys. So I look at it like this, what the, what the Chinese are, are saying is not untrue. We are a racist society, but every society in the globe is a racist society. Racism is, is a very unique component that it it's a natural, um, mindset towards others whom we view differently due to past issues. Um, and if you look at the prisons in the United States, look at the, the vast amount of ethnic or race uh, contrast within our prisons. And if you look at the way how our judicial system is set up, you could definitely, without any question, see that there are issues that we as a country still face today pertaining to race. Um, do I think a lot of it is overblown? I do, but I also can say I do as a white man uh, who is a heterosexual who's happily married with a family. I am now going to soon become a minority in America because I'm a white guy who's heterosexual and I have a family. So I say this for the purpose of understanding that sometimes things are portion. Sometimes people become very sensitive towards a specific subject and they want to embrace that subject and make a big deal out of something that might not be as big a deal as it really could be or should be. Um, and in the vein of what goes back to the conversation in Alaska, I see both sides of this. I think what, what is going on with the Uyghurs is an atrocity, but I also understand the United States has a lot of work to do. But that's what makes America so awesome in comparison to a place like China. We at least will accept our flaws and admit our wrongdoings from our past in an attempt to try to improve upon them. China seems to be that that type of country who says, you know what, we'll try capitalism for five years. And they created a lot of billionaires. Some of the richest people in the world came out of China for years. Guess what? They're quickly leaving China, though. And there's a reason why they're leaving China, because the communists saw that wealth creates power and they do not like it. So now they need to point fingers at us. And that's what they're doing. They're playing a game, guys. That's all what this is. 
Um, I agree. I'm going to throw out. Sorry for my tangent, by the way. No, 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 no. No, please. Uh, Yeah, because we don't want anybody to talk when they come on the show. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We got you for your silence, Carrie. That's why we asked you to come on. I thought um, we got him for the roosters, Chris. That is true. <laughs> well, you, you, you come for the roosters, you stay for the silence. Um, yeah. So, um, Kara, I want to throw, throw this back at you, though. Um, so I spent about five years in different prisons um, working in New York City and in L.A., and I have a real problem with um, – so I'm going to pick on one little thing you said just because I think it's – I hear it a lot and I think it's worth discussing. Um, and I, again, this could be a whole nother hour where we get into uh, the domestic concerns. And I do want to stay focused on the foreign policy, but I want to make sure at least, um, we at least cover this a little bit. So I think there's a difference between correlation and causation. We look at the prisons and we go, well, boy, there's a lot of minorities in there. Okay. There's also a lot of men in there. It's not a whole lot of female prisoners. That doesn't mean that women are getting away with murder and we're just not locking them up. It means that men are predominantly violent, and therefore that's why our prisons are mostly filled with men. Um, As somebody that's living in the big city, I know you've done a lot of city time yourself, Carrie. Um, Look, we know where the good areas are. We know where the bad areas are. We know the areas of the city where you go, yeah, I'm not feeling crazy safe right now. And that's not, I don't think, a white male perspective. I That's backed up by not even just statistics, but anecdotally. Uh, Jesse Jackson famously said in the 90s that he hates himself for going into uh, black neighborhoods where he doesn't feel safe. And he said, I, I, the relief I get when I turn around, it's a white person behind me. It's a horrible thing to say. But his point at the time was that he was trying to make a case that, hey, we really need to address crime in the inner city. Um, my point simply being, I, I, I think it's an overstatement to say we're a racist society. You're absolutely right. Every society has the injustices that we've seen in America and usually in greater degree than we've seen in America. What bothers me about the narrative so much today about America that we hear in pop culture is that we don't seem to understand that those sins are not unique to America. They're, they're literally the most generic thing, and you find them in every country. What makes America different are the virtues of America, which you don't find in every country, and in fact, not even in most countries. So again, it's not to brush aside the injustices in the United States, but it is to put in proportion, hey, where we are right now and where we have been for the last 50 years is radically different, and as you said, than where China is at this point, and certainly where China has been. And I think that's an important point to make because I do think when we're talking about information warfare and information operations, and as Charlie said, if the war is coming to our shores, especially through messaging, it's crucial that Americans understand, hey, we are the good guys, and here's why. It's not just simply because we like white men. That That is the most reductive and, I think, damaging to our psyche because then we think, eh, what's the point of defending it? And to me, that's the psychological warfare. If we don't think America is worth defending, we won't defend it, and we'll piss it away. And that's and the Chinese would love that. Charlie, am I missing something? Did I go too far, not far enough? I think that something that I wrote down to bring up, a little bit later on, you gave me a, a, a pathway, and we'll go ahead and mention it right now. It seems like America has been steadily losing the moral high ground for decades now. So one of the reasons that we are strong is because 
we have a lot of relationships with foreign powers. We have a lot of good friends overseas, but also we have a good unified front internal to the United States. But that's been getting eaten away gradually by these uh, sometimes true and sometimes not true allegations against America for all, all manner of sins, real and imagined. So I think that's one of the things that's giving our enemies and our competitors courage right now is they see our standing in the world as as ebbing. Now, there's a constant ebb and flow to any any nation's appearance and profile in the world. But I think ours is is in dangerous ground right now. And I think we need to do a better job of shoring it up, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Chris, real real quick, because I'm going to forget this thought, though. Um, Charlie brought up about friends, so to speak. All right. Friends across the globe. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Um, I don't I don't think that we have any friends in the globe right now. I think what we have is we have um, partners. They're not friends. They're partners, and they're only partners largely because we throw money at every single thing. Um, and, and we it, that is the State Department and the IC's um, mantra. It's, hey, we'll, we'll throw money at it, and it'll just miraculously go away. And if you look at, for example, Afghanistan, all right, I know of one project that was a $2 billion project um computer program that was non-profit non-organ uh, non-government organizations that were provided two billion dollars from the u.s government to disseminate uh laptop computers throughout all of afghanistan mostly for school kids that was the intent i see, I see no way this could possibly go wrong yes go ahead right and all went and those computers wound up going into the bazaars and the taliban got a hold of them we know this uh, from the folks that I was working with out of Jalalabad, Afghanistan, because we had a safe house that created a um, server system. So we were running the Internet throughout pretty much all of Nanghar province, and we were tracking all the IPs. <laughs> of that $2 billion, only approximately $2 million actually went to the program itself. So there were a lot of locals that became millionaires overnight. And if you went to Kabul, you would be able to walk in and see Millionaire Row because of U.S. funds. So if you think about the way how we operate as a country and the way how we just throw money at everything, can you imagine if you had a true no-nonsense checks and balances through blockchain technology in an attempt to Ensure that when you say this money is going to go to this program, there really is a, a proof of work through blockchain to verify exactly what happened. And that's where I think the next wars um, domestically are, are domestic issues right now are global issues that we face. If you start putting stuff on blockchain uh, technology for trust, that's how America could actually become unified again if we ever truly were unified as a nation, I mean, we get unified when people pick on us. That, that's when we come together. 9-11 was great because we all came together, but it, it faded away quickly. But my point that I'm trying to make here is <laughs> go back to the adversaries, who's friends, who's not friends. Well, no, they, they just want to pay off. And nine out of 10 times, those payoffs are, are not doing what they're intended to do. And people are becoming really, really rich off of U.S. tax dollar funds. 
And that's a problem inside the United States. And that's not, and that's very apolitical. I say that with the right in office, with the left in office, I don't care who's in office. That is our way of doing things. So that's where I just wanted to bring that up with Charlie is I, I disagree. I don't think we really have friends in, in, in the globe. I think so, people use us. Kerry, let me, let me ask then, what country do you think does have friends? I mean, not everybody's going to throw money at each other, maybe the way we do, but do you think any countries have friendships um, or are we, are we different than anybody else in that respect? Oh yeah, I I do think there's um, there's definitely I think partnerships that are that are truly strong alliance of friendships. Uh, I think there there's some East um, I'm sorry, Western European countries that do work in harmony with one another. Uh, they they have that long term relationship where uh, they they will go to one another's aid without any monetary compensation. And what I mean by that is. We have to throw monetary compensation at people for them to go to our side. If you look at the last uh, couple conflicts that we've had where we create a multinational force, most of those countries only join on our side because we give them an incredible payout that bolsters their military, their own military industrial complex through our military industrial complex. Sure. Yeah, I guess I guess where I'm going with this is I'm not sure I see a huge difference. Like I, I would argue that, like in cases like uh, England, like the UK, to a lesser extent, but still Israel, I, I would say there is an awful lot of. I, I think those friendships, and I'll put that in quotes for the time being, those friendships are about as real as any two nation state friendships you can find on the globe. I'm not sure I could find another pairing. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, and I'm open to suggestions, but I can't think of other countries off the top of my head that have as close relationships based off of shared interests as those right now. Now, certainly in Israel's case, there's a lot of money and tech that goes back and forth. Same with the UK to a lesser extent, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, anybody see any, any counterexamples to that? You can look at Fran France and Spain. France and Spain have an amazing relationship. Sure. They, they certainly haven't asked a whole lot of each other, though, right? Because they haven't really gone sure. and said to the other guy, hey, man, come along with me because we really need you to get our back. Um, right. I mean, certainly for the demands we've made, I don't know. I, I would take the Pepsi challenge with us. I'm not and, – and that – let me be clear. That's not necessarily an, uh, uh, an endorsement of throwing money at every problem. But I, I, I'm not sure our, our friendships are weakened. Charlie, I cut you off, though. Sorry. Go ahead. No, we're all good, brother. I, I was just going to observe. I think it was Kissinger who said there's there's no permanent friends or enemies, only interests. Right. So I think we have a lot of friends in the world right now, and some of those relationships are buoyed by money. And some of our friends today won't be our friends tomorrow, which goes to the fundamental higher theory of, of realism. Can't trust anybody. You got to be self-reliant. And I would, frankly, I'd rather have a coalition of the willing or even a coalition of the bought off to, to go fight someone like China. And I think as long as our interests align, then we can have any number of friends. And China's making a lot of people nervous right now. I spent a couple months in the Philippines, and it's very interesting, their relationship with China. It's a bit fraught. If I remember correctly, China owns most of Philippines' electric infrastructure. So if you think about the power that China has over the Philippines' interests, that, that's pretty powerful. So they're building islands out there. They have the ridiculous nine dash line. You got built and road initiative going on. 
and the Chinese are throwing a lot of money at their problem right now, which is strategic influence. And sometimes the best way to counter that is with your own money. So we do spend a lot of money. I'm not involved in that, so I, I don't have much of an opinion of it. It does seem a bit extreme, some of the amounts we're giving these these countries. But at the end of the day, I guess money talks sometimes, and that's probably why we continue to do it, Chris. And our, our, great, our greatest ally, guys, um, that nobody ever talks about is actually Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Australia, yep. ever since Australia has been an actual nation, independent nation, and since we have been an independent nation, every single conflict that we've ever been involved in, they're the only nation that has actually sent uh, some form of uh, force, whether it be their special operators, their advisors, or what have you. I mean, even in Panama, Granada, um, they've always been by our side. And we never, as a nation, ever talk about our relationship with Australia. But Chris, you know, you, you keep bringing up China. I'll, I'll tell you that the, the greatest threat, and if you, I have friends of mine in Australia, if you ever talk to the Australians, yeah. they will tell you flat out, their biggest fear is the United States getting sucked into a vacuum where um, we, we skip out on keeping an eye on, on our greatest ally throughout the hemisphere. And that, that really is Australia. They're, they're worried to death about what's going on with China right now. Oh, yeah. No, I, absolutely. I, 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 yeah, I think that's, that's um, completely correct. I, I want to, th- since we've kind of all agreed that China certainly is, our 50 meter target and is certainly um, the biggest clear and present danger that we see. I want to throw out something that uh, kind of my hypothesis, and I don't think it's super controversial, but I'll throw it out there just to get a sanity check on this. I believe that almost all of the world's problems, geopolitical problems, uh, problems where one nation, that one nation causes to another nation or one entity causes to nations through international terrorist organizations, what have you. I believe almost all of them can be reduced to Russia, Iran, China, um, and and that nexus that you take that away. Pretty much you're left with maybe with a few local problems. It's certain there's never going to be a trouble free world, but those three governments are almost always at the root of generally every com- every significant conflict and displacement that we see. Am I right? Am I wrong? Sanity check me on that, Charlie Faint. So I think typically those are indeed the, the ones that are giving us a problem right now. But if we think back to the days of World War II, Japan was causing an enormous sure, 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 problem. Sure. No one was scared of China. Sorry. Yeah, and let me stipulate for right now. Yes, not, not in all of history. That is absolutely Of course, yeah, of course. Right. But what I'm thinking about is the today's enemies might not be tomorrow. So China has got me really scared right now. They're building a huge army. The reason they're doing that is 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 us. There's no other reason why they would need to do what they're doing. Why are they building aircraft carriers? Why are they expanding their subfleet? Why 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 why? It's because of us, and they're using that to intimidate their neighbors. And I read an interesting article before we went on the show today, Chris. It was Admiral John uh, uh, Aquilino's. Uh, who's going to be taking oh, over U.S. Pacific yeah. Fleet, talking about how China is, is going to go after Taiwan, like soon. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of a trigger for war for us. So that's got me, it's going to be pretty concerned right now. No, absolutely. And it makes me wonder, uh, Charlie, I'll bounce this off you. What are your feelings on militarizing Japan, on us finally uh, taking the yoke off of Japan that we put on since World War II? And 
uh, allowing them to rearm and defend themselves against China and counter the Chinese influence. How do you feel about that? So that's something I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about recently. But when I was out in U.S. Army Pacific, it's, it's something that, that we did look into a lot. I think the Japanese self-defense forces are extremely capable. I think that they are a good lever for us to use against North Korea and China. But there are a lot of other nations that still have scar tissue from historical interactions with the Japanese, including the Japanese themselves. Of course. So it would be a huge, huge shift for them to go from their self-defense forces to an actual uh, expeditionary army. And I'm not sure they or the world are ready for it right now, Chris. Kerry, I want to ask you, the um, <clears throat> I think one thing that can sometimes paralyze us as the United States, um, especially now uh, when we – are so self-critical and we're so quick to take a look at our own history and second guess every decision made in foreign policy that can be especially crippling because I don't think you ever have good decisions in foreign policy. All you ever have is the lesser of two evils. And I say that with respect to what we're talking about with arming Japan because it's very easy to see how in 50 years – School kids could be getting taught, and then the U.S. screwed it all up by letting Japan arm itself, and that's how Japan ended up dominating the Pacific Rim again, which they've only done every time they've ever had a standing military. And how did the U.S. not see that coming without taking into account the fact, the calculus that we have to do at this moment to go, yeah, but you don't seem to understand China at the time was doing X, Y, and Z. How much, how much of that do you agree with? Do you think that we get paralyzed uh, and that there's a real temptation to get paralyzed right now into inaction because we don't want to make the wrong move when we just might not have any choice but to make a, a, a potentially wrong move? Use Iran as an example. Iran was one of the greatest allies America had in the region um, post, you know, immediately after World War II. And what actually truly created Iran to be Iran today versus the United States? Um, and, and I think in very great large part, it was because of the United States and really predominantly through our relationship with Great Britain at the time. Um, great Britain was in a serious quagmire knowing that British Petroleum was in jeopardy. And, uh, and that was their greatest GDP. And they came to the United States and they asked us because we were so close with the Shah at the time, you know, we're going to just have our GDP destroyed if they nationalize oil. And we turned around, we started playing certain games on behalf of Great Britain, and, and it created a very long history uh, that is still unraveling today with uh, what has transpired. Um, so when you look at it from that standpoint, uh, there is no true answer to how we move forward because it's really a guessing man's game at that point. But if we could understand the past and what we did to, to get us to where we are today. And if we could sit down and actually have a conversation with folks, a, a true, no nonsense conversation that people on both sides would actually turn around and say, you know what? Yeah, we all messed up here. Maybe we shouldn't have tried to nationalize, you know, oil because it hurt us in the long run. And oh, by the way, it hurt you guys in the long run because now we're all under a constant threat. You know, I did this talking with Taliban members and Haqqani members, you know, and it's crazy how quick you could shape the individual mindsets of key personnel and leaders 
if you just have that conversation, I lived in Japan. Look, my, my grandma, I remember my grandparents singing, you know, very racist songs about the Japanese that were sung during World War II. And they were singing them to us when we were little kids. And then all of a sudden, my first duty assignment, I moved to Tokyo. And I brought home a Japanese woman to my brother's wedding. I thought my grandmother was going to have a heart attack. Sure. But then she got to talk to her. And she got to understand who this person was. Our problem as Americans, I think, is we're very, in a, in a crazy way, I know this isn't going to sound right, but it's true. We're very isolated when it comes to our mindset. We're very narrow focused when it comes to the ability to listen to others who are vastly different than us. And if we can just learn to almost have that um, U.S. Army Special Forces FID mindset where we could go in and we don't want to create you. We want to just sharpen your pre-existing skills. And yet we can't do that unless we listen to you first. I'm just going to, for listeners that might not know, FID is Foreign Internal Defense. So uh, I'll just do a little anachronization for anybody that uh, that is following in the wake of Kerry's thought. It's a great point, though, Kerry, and um, I I want to pick up that thread. I'm not going to go down. You're throwing the bait out there of Mossadegh and the Iranian thing. That's a hot button issue for me. But like everything else, Kerry, you're going to have to come back on here, and we got like seven more hours that we have to do because you bring up too many good things that that we could talk about for hours. So I'm going to let that lie for the time being. But um, I do want to touch on your overall point about what I would call the solipsism of the United States. And it's not totally unearned. Look, we're not Belgium. We're not the Netherlands. We're not a country that is embedded amongst many other countries um, and a nation state that has been embedded like that for centuries and therefore has a lot of shared history, you know, has the ability to learn languages because you're naturally within a four hour drive of, you know, six different languages. It, it, we're, we're an, a relatively isolated country. We're almost an entire continent. We stretch from sea to sea. We have one of our neighbors, our biggest neighbor, is, speaks the same language as us for the most part. I'm going to ignore the Quebecois for the time being. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why we would be solipsistic, why we would be self-involved, why we don't have an, why we don't naturally think of learning multiple languages, talking to people with different experiences, uh, especially geopolitical enemies, because they're so far removed from us geographically that it's just not, you know, it's not something we think about. I would also say that solipsism extends to our politics where we get wrapped up with domestic concerns almost to the exclusion of foreign policy, I think you can look at every president and they are judged completely through what I like to call the pop sugar uh, uh, lens as to how they did. Well, they were great on you know this social issue or that social issue, but we never we never really look at the foreign policy and the nuances of it seem to baffle us a lot of the time. People still can't even wrap their heads around you know, when Iraq turned or when, when the war got worse, when it got better, when we pulled out, many people aren't even aware that we're still there. Um, those kind of things to me seem to be a, a natural byproduct of our geography. Charlie, you agree with me or do you think there's something else to it? Yeah, I think that, that you brought up a lot of great points right then, Chris. And while you were talking, I, I was thinking about geographical significance and I, and I was thinking about, 
what's going on in the Suez Canal right now. And before anyone goes, what, what does that have to do with China? I, I think, you know, what we see with the, with the Suez Canal, you got 10% of the world's oil going through that or, or whatever it is, 10% of the world traffic is completely gummed up. And I couldn't help but make an, a comparison to the Straits of Malacca, which China relies on for its energy resource. So 25% of the world's commerce goes through it. So you got one ship apparently accidentally stopping up 10%. China's probably looking at this and like, oh, crap, what's going to happen if something happens in the Straits of Malacca? There's something that they're very concerned about. So maybe the, the next big conflict doesn't take place on land like most of us are used to. Maybe it's it's in the sea and it's over these strategic choke points, Chris. Guys, this is um, – obviously, I, it's my fault. I threw out a huge topic, and then I said, hey, we're going to talk about it for 20 minutes, which was laughable. And we've done an hour, so I do want to shift uh, so we can have some semblance of closure. The bottom line is, though – I'm uh, very disappointed. We didn't get any cool exotic answers like, hey, don't you get it? If you connect all the dots, the next war is actually going to be in Mauritania. <laughs> so we didn't get some really cool, unique answer. So it's an overall fail. But great, I mean, so many great threads to pick up. There, there's no two ways about it. I think the tentacles all connect back to China, certainly in the near term, as best as we can see. Um there's just so much more to mine, but listen, uh, that was all great. Carrie, I want to ask you though about Liberty blockchain. Tell me about that. What should we all know about it? Uh, so (laughs) Liberty blockchain is a new, uh, tech startup, um, that is founded in part by some of the United States first, um, Bitcoin miners, uh, who have done just unprecedented amount of work. Uh, we're talking about like Wright Thurston, um, Eric Shermeyer, and you might have heard of Eric Shermeyer because of the game Farmville. He was one of the creators behind that and uh, Gala and so forth. So uh, Liberty Blockchain is going to fall under an umbrella of uh, a bigger blockchain uh, entity, but it, it's going to be heavy with uh, a veteran focus where veterans that are big into gamers uh, would be able to run nodes on their computer systems and actually have those nodes mine um, currency, cryptocurrency, uh, without them having to do anything other than just run the node on their own computer system. And they will be financially rewarded. One of the uh, cryptos that we, um, the team has been around uh, is now running nodes. And we just found uh, one of the persons a family that was running the node in the philippines just um purchased their their first home ever in cash so some of these nodes are so powerful that they're generating over seventy five hundred dollars a month u.s currency dollars um and, it, and it's hard to understand it's hard to comprehend but our intent with liberty is to create an open source platform that will serve for tips and leads that will have a global footprint through the network where um, law enforcement, uh, intelligence uh, organizations and so forth would have a one-stop shop of an open source platform that you as an intelligence officer would be able to click and basically generate a report based off of the social media that is the platform baseline. So what we're doing is to put it simplified, think of a Facebook-like entity where any user could go on and create a blog post, let's just say about their trip to Barbados, and they give some background information. I, as an intelligence officer, want to find out as much as I can about the country of Barbados. 
I can make one click and it will generate all sorts of data just off of this social media platform. In turn, people would get rewarded based off of how um, users are taking that information and um, verifying it. So they would then be, when I say rewarded, I'm talking about through currency. Legitimate bloggers now would be able to make money. Uh, so you think of the Havoc Journal blog. That could actually become a part of the node under a Liberty blockchain. And with our customers, our viewers, that go to every single blog post within Havoc Journal, every time it's clicked, that's generating currency. So Havoc Journal, as a standalone entity, could run the Liberty blockchain node and start generating a, a tremendous amount of uh, money. And when I say tremendous amount, I mean, we all know bloggers don't make money. So when you think of a, a website that's making $7,500 a month, just off of people viewing it through a node system, uh, not just the advertisement, it, it's a lot. And, and this is one that we're really going to start tapping the veteran community to because we want veterans to have an alternative means to uh, generate revenue uh, in a fun, enjoyable way, but also uh, with a little bit of seriousness. Carrie, I that is so I don't know. I'm so uneducated on blockchain and crypto and all the rest of it. And, and that's to my detriment. I got to get smart on that stuff. Um, again, one of the 90 topics we can have you back on to talk with, with me about at length. Uh, I will say though, in my limited exposure to at least discussing blockchain and crypto, that's the first time I've heard an advocate, uh, for crypto or, or blockchain ever come out and, uh, advocate the, uh, value of it to an intelligence uh, officer. I always hear the libertarian thing of like, hey, this gets you out of the government's uh, viewpoint. No one will ever know. And you're going, hey, if you're an intelligence officer, you want to know all about this. Yeah. Go ahead and click it. So uh, I, I like the spin. Uh, I, I, Chris, I let, me just, let me just uh, throw that caveat because I did say that and I meant it. But the real key when I say an intelligence officer and the scope of intelligence, think about human trafficking. All right. Uh, Covenant Rescue Group is a nonprofit that I'm a part of right now. Um, and there are even inside the United States, on average, the Department of Justice guesstimates that there's at least one person in every single town on average that's being held against their will. All right. So if that's the truth and that's the case, there are people out there that know of these persons, but they're scared out of their mind to even come to an authority to reveal the whereabouts. So we could create that that open source platform for them to create the tips and lead. And then there's folks that are doing that research and investigation that would then turn around and do the operations to do the recovery. So no, they would no, be law I, enforcement in that. So, let, yeah, let, let, let me let me be clear. I was only laughing because I, I just had images of like Nick Gillespie at Reason Magazine just going oh, a heart yeah. attack or something. And I, I, it yeah. just made me laugh. I just thought that was that was a hilarious take. Oh, we're very um, libertarian minded, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got you. Um, no, I love the take. So listen. Uh, you guys have been way too generous with your time. I appreciate it. We've gone over as we tend to always do. Um, and I'm only cutting it off because if we say one more word about just about anything, we're going to do at least another hour. Um, Charlie, Kerry, thank you guys for being here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having always us. a pleasure. So thank you for listening. Everybody, the show notes are at the weekly Again, that's the weekly 
Havoc.com. There are also going to be links on the Havoc Journal homepage. But you can go to the uh, to the web, to the website for the podcast at theweeklyhavoc.podbeam.com. There you can have the show notes. You'll have alibis for anything that I wake up at 2 in the morning and realize I misstated or misremembered or needs further clarification. Um, traditionally, it's just me that has the alibis because I seem to be the one that likes to mess up and say the wrong thing. Uh, but it's also open for our guests. Uh, sometimes, uh, like last week, Dave Hartman wanted to uh, preemptively cover up something that it ended up he didn't say at all. So it was just a great exercise in um, preemptive CYA that absolutely had no value, but we got a couple of good jokes out of it. So anyway, go to the weeklyhavoc.podbeam.com. Go to the Havoc Journal. When you go to uh, the, the uh, podcast website, you will see all the links. You'll see Havoc Journal links. You'll see writ links for uh, Liberty Blockchain. Uh, you'll see ones for my uh, website, Savage Wonder. Uh, and I think, well, I don't know, a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, go there. You'll see everything you need to see. Um, subscribe, please. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, five-star reviews. We welcome them. I think five-star reviews are only at iTunes. They might be on some other platforms as well. Clearly, I only listen to my podcasts on iTunes. But five-star reviews, very, very welcome. If you haven't given us one, we'd really appreciate it. Um, if you liked us, if you like the show, if you like what we're trying to do here, uh, if you just want to support veterans in general but you think we're meh, we'll take it. Give us a five-star review. We deeply appreciate it. As always, thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Carrie Patton and to Charlie Faint and to the rooster in Carrie's yard who has added more than we will ever know to this show. I will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. So in the next 36 hours, anything comes up, just email me. Uh, we'll put it out there. You know, let me know the left-right limits of how you want the release. If you're like hey, Chris, I don't even know enough. what the fuck I said, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's that's why God invented two in the morning. Because <laughs> what I've noticed is two in the morning is when I go, oh shit, wait, did I just say that? What was yeah. I talking about? <laughs>